Engel. In football or soccer, there are rules for a ball out of play. That's exactly where we're taking you in this podcast series, Out of Play. Beyond the rules, beyond the pitch, beyond the game. Because every four years during the World Cup, it's more than a simple story of goals scored and athletic displays. Sometimes the really interesting part starts after the final whistle. We've crossed the world to talk with journalists and passionate fans to bring you some of these stories that all have one thing in common, the World Cup. In the stories you'll hear, some of you weren't even born yet. For others, you might remember it like it was yesterday. This series, Out of Play, takes you inside eight of these tales, thanks to the people who actually lived them. You may wonder, why choose an American to help tell you these stories? Well, it's obvious. We're neutral. We're never in the World Cup. Rapturous celebration engulfed football-mad Egypt when the iconic striker, Hossam Hossan, led his team to victory in a crucial qualifier against Algeria in Cairo almost 30 years ago. The triumph sent the Egyptian team to the 1990 World Cup after years of failure. Hassan's famous goal sent a sellout crowd at Cairo Stadium into delirium as Egypt secured a tense 1-0 win over their North African rivals. It was their first World Cup final since 1934, when Egypt had been the first African team to play in football's most prestigious tournament. The curse was broken, and many believed Egypt would have a more regular presence at the World Cup. They gave an encouraging performance at the 1990 finals, despite a group stage exit, including a remarkable 1-1 draw with the Netherlands, Europe's champions at that time. But it wasn't meant to be. Repeated failures and near misses dogged them. It took another 28 years for Egypt to qualify again for the World Cup. The losing streak made Egypt sort of a joke. The team that had easily dominated Africa was now a flop on the world stage. Between 1990 and 2018, a World Cup appearance seemed like a mirage in the desert. Television ads poked fun at Egypt's endless failures. A famous sports magazine used the same headline every time the national team lost in the qualifiers. Bye-bye, 1998. See you in 2002. And following their flop four years later, Bye-bye, 2002. See you in 2006. And so on. Magdi Abelgani scored Egypt's only goal at the 1990 World Cup. He jokingly suggested that no one would ever be able to best his penalty against the Netherlands. Egyptian fans fumed over Abdelghani's boasting. Can't we qualify for the World Cup just to silence him, they lamented. Mo Salah, the Liverpool forward, had the answer. He was the answer. Salah's well-played double in Alexandria last October, including a stoppage-time penalty, was dramatic as Egypt claimed a harrowing 2-1 win over Congo to achieve the unthinkable. The joyous scenes that followed the match said it all. Back in 1989, the last time Egypt qualified for the World Cup, 
There was also jubilation, but something was different in 2017. There was more ecstasy, more euphoria, more energy. Decades ago, Egypt was already struggling to cure its ailing economy at the beginning of Hosni Mubarak's rule. Today, it's even worse for the country. The political upheaval that followed the 2011 Arab Spring, coupled with the economic crisis, multiplied the woes and suffering of Egyptians. They yearned for anything to cheer about. If there's one thing you need to know, it's that you can't underestimate the power of football in Egypt. It's so popular that the fame of football stars eclipses actors and singers. Egyptians eat, sleep, and breathe football. You see kids kicking a ball in the streets and alleyways using stones as goalposts. These little footballers proudly wear their favorite star's shirts, like former Ali playmaker Mohamed Abu Treka and Mo Salah. Football makes Egyptians happy. Ali and Zamalek are Egypt's most successful clubs, and their rivalry is a hallmark of domestic football. The usually heated Cairo Derby is watched by millions in Egypt and is also a fixture in other Arab countries, especially in the Gulf region. Victory and defeat for either side in the Cairo Derby deeply impacts the morale of passionate fans. They take to the streets en masse every time their beloved club or the national team wins any high-profile competition, honking car horns and blaring patriotic song. Political turmoil and bitter divisiveness followed the 2011 protests. Only football seems to cure that, at least occasionally. Everything else takes a back seat when there's a football victory. Political affiliations become irrelevant. But over the last 30 years, football and politics have been mixed far too often. Egypt's rulers have used the charm of football for their own gain. Autocratic leader Hosni Mubarak, who was deposed following the uprising in 2011, would attend important home games for the Egyptian national team. Pro-state media regularly portrayed him as a champion of Egypt's sports. Television sports presenters gave Mubarak credit every time Ali, Zamalek, or the national team clinched a trophy, even before praising the efforts of the players and coaches. Mubarak's continued support was always cited as a main reason for football triumphs. Mubarak's congratulatory messages were always read first on television. He usually attended final games in Cairo and would receive the winners if they triumphed on the road. According to critics at the time, Mubarak also took advantage of one particular incident in order to groom his two sons for higher office. In 2009, Egypt lost to Algeria 1-0 in an ill-tempered World Cup qualifying playoff in Sudan. Tensions boiled over following the match in Omerdurman where the game was played. Football riots erupted, both sides trading blame for the melee. Egyptian media fanned the flames of anti-Algerian sentiment accusing the fellow North African team's fans of instigating attacks on Egyptian fans, including Mubarak's two sons, Allah and Gamal. It was an opportune moment for the state as tensions ran high. Protesters laid siege to the Algerian embassy in Cairo. Mubarak referred to the incident in a famous speech in parliament, 
He said he wouldn't tolerate humiliation of Egyptians abroad. It is the responsibility of the state to take care of our people abroad and protect their rights. And we will not allow anyone to harm or harass them or insult their dignity. Mubarak's sons, Gamal and Allah, also stepped in. The latter made headlines with a heated phone call to a famous sports television show. He expressed his anger, saying Egypt would not accept a mere apology from Algeria. Gamal also chimed in, adding that whoever orchestrated the attacks should face the consequences. Mubarak's sons were praised for their public statements. Speculation about their future as the successors of an aging Mubarak resurfaced. Even Mubarak's critics said it was strong political play. But a stunning 18-day revolt dethroned Mubarak less than two years later. Mohammed Hosni al-Sayed Mubarak, firstly, is sentenced to life in prison for his role in the killing of protesters. Clashes continued between protesters and the ruling military that had replaced Mubarak. But a few months following the revolution, things looked pretty normal as in June 2011, when Ali and Zamalek faced off in a heated Cairo Derby, which ended in a 2-2 draw. Ali was favored in the league title race. The crowd roared at Cairo's famous 74,100-seat stadium. It seemed football fans had avoided the pits of political instability until February 1st, 2012. It was a league game between Masri and Ali in the coastal city Port Said. A few days before the game, Masri Ultras released a song on YouTube to intimidate Ali fans. If you're coming to Port Said, the song warns, write your mother a death note. You will certainly die and no one will care. The match was chaos. Fans stood behind the Masri goal and jumped onto the pitch after every goal Masri scored. After the final whistle, a horde of home team Masri fans stormed the field with stones, bricks, knives, and other weapons. They went after everyone in Ali colors. Players, coaches, fans. Ali fans couldn't leave the stadium because the doors were locked and there were no emergency exits. When Masri fans went onto the pitch, security shut off the electricity and the lights. What happened next was a disaster. 74 people were killed and 500 others injured. Fans died inside the Ali locker room, right in front of the players. This game went down as the worst disaster in Egypt's football history. The authorities were accused of being accomplices in the massacre. Security forces and officials at the stadium were very lenient and were laid back in securing the game. Why? It probably goes back to the revolution. Ultrist groups in Egypt had participated in the revolution and were a vital force of change because they could quickly mobilize. They had Facebook pages and WhatsApp groups so they could easily call for everyone to gather for protests. The tactics were effective in the days it seemed the regime would remain in power. They humiliated security forces and were a major headache to officials. An easy way for officials to take revenge was to ruin their number one passion. 
football. An outright crowd ban was immediately imposed. The 2011-2012 league season was canceled altogether. Fans and security officials went to trial for their responsibility in the massacre. Enthusiasm for football crashed. Suddenly, there was little interest in Egypt's most popular sport. In the heat of the moment, several prominent players said they would hang up their cleats, including stars Mohamed Barakat and Mohamed Abu Treka. Although Barakat and Abu Treka were only bluffing, it was obvious the disaster had left permanent damage. The next season was also ultimately cancelled in the upheaval following the ouster of new Islamist president Morsi. Morsi only lasted a year, another president toppled by the army after mass protests against his rule. Four months later, World Cup qualifying playoffs. October 2013, Egypt versus Ghana in Kumasi. At the time, Islamists staged regular rallies in Egypt to protest Morsi's ouster. Police forces cracked down hard on dissenters, killing scores of demonstrators. Islamists made no secret of their wish that Egypt would lose the match. Pro-state media retaliated, calling them traitors. A victory for the pharaohs would mark a victory for the state over the Islamists. Before kickoff, Egyptian supporters were spotted in the Ghanaian section. They held up a banner with the Rabah sign, a reference to a pro-Morsi protest camp that was crushed by police forces in Cairo that killed hundreds. Ghanaian police force took away the banner before the match began. Ghana humiliated Egypt in a painful 6-1 match. That was the end of their hopes to qualify for the 2014 World Cup Finals in Brazil. Islamists said the loss was a fair result for what they called unjust actions of the Egyptian regime. Once again, pro-state media accused the Islamists of betraying their country. The Egyptian national team struggled for glory, suffering from the government's war with Islamists. The record seven-time African champions could not even qualify for the 2013 and 2015 African Nations Cup. The once booming football industry now had a hard time attracting new investors and sponsorship deals. And just when things started to pick up again, a new setback hit Egyptian football. February 2015, the first match since Egyptian authorities lifted the long-standing crowd ban in domestic football. While attempting to enter a Cairo stadium to watch a league game, 21 Zamalek fans died in a stampede after security forces fired tear gas. The tragedy at the army-owned air defense stadium prompted authorities to immediately reimpose the crowd ban. The league was halted, and the future of football in Egypt once again looked bleak. Retired footballer Abu Treka, an iconic figure in the country, said Egyptian football died after the Air Defense Stadium massacre. The game has been in the emergency room since the 2012 Port Said tragedy, he added, and now it is dead. The ultra-white knights, the main fan group of Zamalek, dedicated a song to the victims. Its title, Open the Gate, We Are Dying, was a reference to a plea uttered by some of the victims before they were crushed. Even when the crowd ban was later partially lifted in continental matches featuring Ali and Zamalek, 
clashes still occurred between hardcore ultra groups and security forces. There was still a chance to resurrect football in turmoil-stricken Egypt. The national team hoped to end their World Cup losing streak in the 2018 qualifiers. Skeptics say any good run would just be luck, a false dawn, and that the team, as usual, would fail when it matters most. A 1-0 defeat at Chad, hardly a powerhouse, in the first leg of a preliminary round had fans worried Egypt would even be able to survive a stunning exit at the first hurdle. But they recovered with a convincing 4-0 home win to advance to the group phase. In the lineup, Uganda, Congo, and heavyweight Ghana, with the Black Stars deemed their real challengers in the mission for a World Cup ticket. Egypt garnered considerable fan support in home matches. Their early results in the group looked promising, although critics were still sharp because of the team's ultra-cautious strategy under Argentinian coach Hector Cooper. A string of recent performances, along with stumbles for Ghana, put Egypt closer to the World Cup. There was just one match to go against Congo, a game they absolutely had to win to qualify, in front of a sellout crowd at Alexandria's Borg El Arab Stadium. Congo's defense was impenetrable in the first half. Fans grew nervous as the clock ticked and ticked and ticked. At 63 minutes, Salah finally broke through with a goal, sparking wild celebrations in the stands. Fans thought it was only a matter of time before history would be made. But Congo silenced the crowd, leveling the score out of the blue with only two minutes remaining. Buka Mutu fired one home on the half volley after a defensive lapse. Fans wept in agony. In a dramatic scene, Salah fell to the ground, hitting the turf with his fists before standing again and asking fans for support. He then clapped to motivate his teammates as the timer wound down. An emotional commentator shouted at the referee, Give us something, give us anything, as Egypt pushed hard for a crucial win. Miraculously, at the very end of the game, midfielder Mahmoud Trezguet Hassan was hauled down the area after a hopeful long ball. The referee immediately pointed to the spot. Cheers erupted in the stands as if he'd already scored the goal. Fans cried. It was not clear if they were tears of joy or tears of fear the penalty might be wasted, or maybe both. While his ecstatic teammates prematurely celebrated winning on the penalty, Salah looked like he was in another world. With a solid poker face, he clutched the ball and calmly placed it on the penalty spot. He stepped up, looking composed, and then, with a left foot kick, sent the goalkeeper the wrong way. Screams of joy rang out as he hit it home. Salah's nerves of steel had saved the day. Trying to contain his emotions, he said afterwards, I can't express how I feel. I don't talk so much, but I'm really proud. We realized a long-awaited dream. That was a dream come true. Whether as a footballer or an Egyptian citizen and fan, I'm proud I made the Egyptians happy by scoring twice today against Congo. The most difficult moment in my life was when the fans fell silent following Congo's equalizer. But thank God we realized my childhood dream. 
Egypt seemed united following the qualifying win over Congo, at least for one night. People celebrated all over the country, including in Cairo's Tahrir Square, the cradle of the 2011 uprising. It was a rare scene. Football appeared to have somewhat healed the nation's wounds, even if just a little bit. Salah became the most celebrated football in Egypt, a cult icon, a status he gilded with a series of dazzling displays for Liverpool. Having reached unprecedented heights for any Egyptian footballer, he united Egyptians every time he scored for the Reds. Salamania engulfed Egypt, bringing hope to kids from modest backgrounds that they might one day follow in his footsteps. While ex-Egypt playmaker Mohamed Abotreka was also popular, his public support of Morsi Islamists alienated some of his supporters. Salah was apolitical, shying away from voicing any of his political views. He is now the subject of murals in Cairo's streets. There are Salah-branded products, including toys and lanterns for the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. There's even a popular Mo Salah haircut. What Salah offers Egyptians goes beyond the boundaries of football. Once rejected by Zamalek, whose chairman thought Salah wasn't good enough to join the team in 2011, he has defied the odds and has had a successful career in Europe. When he struggled to hold down a regular first-team spot with Chelsea, he tried elsewhere in stints with AS Roma and Fiorentina, where he chose to wear the number 74 on his back in homage to the supporters killed at Port Said. He never looked back. In his hometown, a poor village on the Nile Delta, kids speak fondly of their idol. They wear Liverpool shirts and print his name on the back, just above his famous number 11. His inspiring story will be told to generations to come. With the World Cup approaching, Egyptians' hearts skip a beat every time he faces a tough opponent. The country has put all its hopes of advancing to the next round at the World Cup in their newfound hero, Salah. Salah's recent performances have made Egyptians more optimistic than ever. They firmly believe their national team has what it takes to advance beyond Group A. Their first opponents include host country Russia and powerhouses Uruguay and Saudi Arabia. Since the beginning of my career, I've always wanted to win it all. I hope I can become Egypt's best player ever. I work really hard every day to achieve that goal. Salah is certainly successful in his own right no matter what the outcome of the World Cup. But in Russia, he has the chance to take the national team and the entire country, finally, to glory. Out of Play is produced by Angle, and this episode was written by Hartem Meyer. Sound production by V in Paris, France. Original score by Roman Pilo and Max Zippel. English version narrated by David Gassman. Find more episodes of Out of Play anywhere you find podcasts and on outofplaypodcast.com.